Bibles with me as we transition back here to our time for God's Word. Let's turn in the Scriptures together to Psalm 15. Let's turn together to Psalm 15. And the title of our, our message tonight is The Ultimate Question. The Ultimate Question. Let's read our text together to lay the foundation. And by God's grace, we'll get what I've estimated to be about halfway through our, our lesson, our message tonight. And by God's grace, next week we will pick up and conclude the second half. Let's turn to Psalm 15 and read it together. Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, a psalm of David, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of God. Psalm 15 is a beautiful psalm. The whole psalm is giving a question, launching off with a question, and then describing the bulk of the rest of the psalm after the question, a detailed answer to what that question is. Last week when we looked into Psalm 14, we saw kind of an overarching description of the depravity of mankind. And so it's very fitting that Psalm 15 dovetails at the end of Psalm 14 with a description of who the godly are. Who, who are the godly? And this description in Psalm 15 describes the people that God has preserved for himself. Psalm 15, the, the, the longer you spend time in it, is, is a deep, deep well. It, it is Old Testament, and yet it points to the New Testament. It uses Old Testament language, but it points us to our hope in the gospel and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as we see this description given tonight in Psalm 15, we're, we're not looking at um, works righteousness. We're not looking at do more, try harder, do better. That's not what we're seeing here in Psalm 15. But what we are seeing is the birthmarks, you could say, of the, the people of God who've been changed by faith in Christ. To give, for example, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him, rendered to him as righteousness. His faith in the promises of God, that we could walk through the Old Testament and look at the Old Testament saints, perfect, no. But people who the Lord began to sanctify by his spirit and grow in faith, great faith, mighty faith for him. We could simply turn to Hebrews 11, if you will, and, and walk through that and then look at Psalm 15 as a guide. So as we look at Psalm 15, we want to ask this question. Is Psalm 15 intended to be instruction in godliness that can be measured by the law alone? Some people have approached throughout church history and said, well, this is the measure of moralism by the law of God. Another question we could ask is, is Psalm 15 a, a, a song to be sung as priests would enter into the tabernacle or the temple? 
or is it a liturgy, a song to be sung by Old Testament saints as they approached the house of God, as they prepared to worship Him? Uh, there's a number of questions we could apply. Is Psalm 15 intended to replicate the Ten Commandments or the in ten characteristics of a godly person? And I've answered that at the very beginning. No, Psalm 15 is, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of faith at work in the believer. Now this language that Psalm 15 uses, who can come to the tabernacle or the hill of God, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly, clean hands, pure heart type of language. is language that is repeated in the Psalms multiple times in different ways, but very similarly. Psalm 24, for example. Psalm 68, Psalm 87, and Psalm 105 uses refrains that we see here in Psalm 15 and then repeats them again uh, in different ways. Psalm 15 is a passage that the Lord obviously knew, the Lord Jesus Christ and his earthly ministry, steeped in the Pentateuch, steeped in the Old Testament, not to state the obvious, but the only Bible that Jesus and the apostles had at that point was the Pentateuch, the, 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 the written scriptures there. And they knew it well, and not just the Pentateuch, but the Psalms, the Songbook of Israel, the Old Testament prophecies that had been recorded. And it's believed that Psalm 15 was really the, the foundation for the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. And what, which one was that? The Sermon on the Mount. It's believed that Psalm 15, was, which is called David's Sermon on the Mount, was the, the root or the foundation of the Sermon on the Mount that, that Christ preached. In fact, as I read this, as different commentaries pointed to this, I went and paralleled Psalm 15 and the Sermon on the Mount, and it is absolutely right. For example, we'll take just a couple of moments here to, to examine the parallel between Psalm 15 and the Sermon on the Mount that Christ preached. In verse 2 here of Psalm 15, there's a description of walking uprightly, righteousness being worked out in our life, the truth being in our heart. Well, in Matthew chapter 5, if you're taking notes, I'll just give the references, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus gives this, this detailed description of walking in the light, the light of the Holy Spirit, the light of truth. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus makes clear that if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's meant to be crushing. It is crushing and it's meant to be crushing. And he goes on to give detailed descriptions of what the righteousness in the heart of a believer looks like, truth in the heart. And also what a heart of hatred looks like. And he makes these parallels in verses 21 all the way through chapter 6, verse 34. Truth in the heart, hatred in the heart. A heart of adultery, a heart of generosity compared. A heart of prayer, a heart of fasting. A heart of treasure, a heart of service. In, in verse 3 of Psalm 15, he gives this description uh, to him who does not, and notice this word, backbite with his tongue. In other words, harms with his words, nor does he evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up the reproach against his friend. Well, if you remember, or if you've turned over to Matthew 5, Jesus in verses 43 through 48 gives commentary, expands upon that, and says, I tell you, not only love those who love you, 
But true righteousness looks like this. You love not only those who love you, you love not only your relatives, but you love those who hate you. You love those who deceitfully, despitefully seek to use you and abuse you. Very difficult words, no doubt. Easier to read, easier to preach than it is to practice. No, no doubt about it. But this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what the godly looks like. This is what the disciples or the citizens of the kingdom of heaven look like. We see in more parallels, I'll point out one more. In, in verse 4, we see that his words, the righteous man's words have weight and meaning. Also in verse 5, how he uses his money. All of these things are paralleled and Jesus expands upon even in the Sermon on the Mount. As we come back to Psalm 15, we see here that this is a psalm that is written by many who believe is a, a psalm of celebration by David. Celebrating what? Celebrating the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now we cannot dogmatically say that. But it's believed that when David finally was able to see the Ark of the Covenant, you remember his great rejoicing, his dancing, his celebratory instructions to the, the people of Israel, that he made a special tent for it, constructed it, 2 Samuel 6, verse 17. It would be unique in its significance, in its beauty, in its set-apartness, its sanctity. And so David is rejoicing here, and it's believed that he then follows up in Psalm 15 with this deep meditation, this song of asking, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Now, poignant words to consider for sure. We're not going to go into the Old Testament this evening and look at some different passages of, of, of how the chronicling the return of the ark to the people of Israel. But you remember, you remember the man who touched the ark inappropriately. What happened? He died. And so we're not going to unpack that passage, but it matters. It, it matters God's instructions. It points to God's holiness. It points to the reality of who God is. And so David rightly asked this question in a multifaceted way. Who, who can approach you, God? Who can ascend to the hill of the Almighty? Who can come into your presence? So as we look at Psalm 15, the main idea here is David begins to describe the moral integrity, the holiness of the person who worships God. Our outline will be framed around these three points. Number one, the question. Number two, the answer. And number three, the promise. Very simple. Number one, the question asked. Number two, the answer given. And then number three, the promise. And I'll go ahead and warn you, number two is, is a much longer point than number one and number three. And that's why we'll stop in the middle of point number two this week and we'll pick up and complete it and not follow our usual pattern of covering a whole chapter here in these midweek summer studies. Let's begin with number one, the question that is asked. Verse one, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? What a question this is. We can say it like this. This is the greatest question that can be asked. And the question is simply this. Who may, who may approach God? Notice that word abide in verse 1. David breaks it up in two parts, this ultimate question. Who may approach Yahweh? Who may come to Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, and abide in his tabernacle? 
Well, there certainly have been people in Israel's history who decided to disregard God's precepts and instructions, the role of the priests and the, the sacrifices and the incense. They offered up strange fire to the Lord and we see what happened to them in the Old Testament. We could walk through Old Testament accounts of people who disregard, let's just say this, the holiness of God. The holiness of God. If there's one area of the modern church today that is greatly deficient, it's understanding that God is holy. It's seeing God just as he is. God is holy. Isaiah chapter 6 which we'll turn to not now, but in a moment, describes God as how can we take one attribute and how can we take one of the multifaceted attributes of God and which one defines him ultimately, you could say, and it's his holiness. The seraphim in the throne room of heaven are saying, holy, holy, holy are you, O God. Well, the church has lost sight of this. I would simply submit to you, we're, we're far too casual we're far too ignorant of the holiness of God. In fact, to maybe even ask this question, you may be bored with it tonight. Maybe you're sitting there thinking like, well, what's the big deal? We, we all know we, we just come to him through Jesus Christ, right? I hope none of you are saying that, by the way. But it's good for us to go back and to begin with Yahweh, to begin with our creator God, and to begin with who he is. Why man was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Why a Savior needs to be given. Genesis chapter 3, the first promises of the gospel. This is a valid question. This is an important question. David says is this in the first way. Who may approach God? Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? This word abide means temporary, sojourning. It's the idea of a guest, of just passing through. The imagery here is David is pulling from the Old Testament tabernacle, if you will, where God's presence was seen in the tabernacle with his people. His presence was there, but it was temporary. And he's saying, who may be, this language describes, who can be a guest of God? It's interesting, you may live in a neighborhood that has an HOA. If you do, I'll pray for you and ask that the Lord give you grace, that the Lord continue to give you grace upon grace. HOAs are, are as we all know, if, if you know, you know. And you often think, how can I get away from the HOA? It's interesting, the concept of having requirements of living in a certain area, walking up to a, a door, maybe to give a better illustration, is move to Beverly Hills and drive up in a rusted out 1970 pickup truck and park it out on the front curb with all the mansions, you're going to be hearing from somebody at some point. The idea is, is appropriateness. The idea is, is being a guest, walking up to the door and, and knocking on the door, the door of God, and saying, God, who can be your guest? The second way David phrases it is, now, who may abide? He says, who may dwell? This word dwell points to a permanent existence, not just a guest, not just passing through, but Yahweh, who may come and dwell in your holy hill? This idea of, of dwell means who may be a part of your family? Who, who has a seat at the table, O Lord? It points our hearts to the example of David in the Old Testament as our brother Paul Lloyd preached recently at Linda's funeral, did a great job walking through that awesome text 
Who can, who, can, who can come to the table of the king? Who can be a part of the family? Who may abide, dwell with God in his holy hill? Here, the word dwell means be a part of the family. The word holy hill, the phrase holy hill, refers to Mount Zion, which the city of Jerusalem, which was built, the temple would ultimately be built by the son of David, King Solomon. And so what David is saying is, is who can come to this holy place in Jerusalem and have a living worship experience with God? Or maybe put another way, who may enjoy communion with God? Who may converse and have a conversation with holy God? And friends, as you think about your relationship with Yahweh, with our holy God, if you don't regularly stand in awe, you're missing your, the joy of your salvation. Coming back into this Old Testament perspective and walking into the gospel gives us a renewed joy of what we have in Christ. It points us to the, the gospel, the personal work of our Lord Jesus Christ as we think about we have entrance into this holy place. Hebrews language, we have a great high priest. No more high priest, no more human high priest. We have a great earthly high priest, a great heavenly high priest in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ who has forever accomplished all that we need. So number one, the question. Number two, the answer, verses two through five. In this answer, we see David goes into a detailed six-fold description of the character of, of the person who dwells with God, the person who abides with God. You could say it like this, I'm so glad that I'm a part of the family of God. This is familial language. David goes into a detailed description in a simple way that we're not going to follow, but a simple way that you could categorize this list of, of six couplets, totaling 12 characteristics, is this godly man's walk describing the whole of his life, his works, and his words. In a simplistic outline, his, his walk, his works, his words. David walks through what this portrait, as Thomas Watson describes in his book, The Portrait or the Godly Man's Picture, excellent book, by the way. He describes, David does his own godly man portrait. This is what the fruit of the Spirit looks like in the life of someone who is in God's family. This is a holy man. Now, again, I want to emphasize, when we talk about holy, do not be allergic to that word holy. Holiness describes those who are birthed by a holy God. Holiness is not a phrase that we're afraid of. In modern Christianity, tends to be, they think of holiness as synonymous with Phariseeism. Or holiness as synonymous with um, works righteousness. As we're going to see Sunday, our, our text Sunday in Matthew 15 parallels, interestingly, with Psalm 15. And we'll pull more of that out on Sunday. But God hates works righteousness. God hates Phariseeism. God hates double-tonguedness or double-mindedness. He hates empty worship. Well, what we're looking at here in this understanding of holy is God's holiness birthed in the life of a believer. Not works righteousness, quote, holiness to appease God or to earn our way to God. So let's make that distinction very clear from the very beginning. In fact, as David gives us this answer, he's pointing us to the fact that the type of person who approaches God's holy hill is holy 
as God is holy. Hebrews chapter 12, turn there with me just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 20. And again, I, I just want to nail this home because we live in a day of mediocre, commonplace, lukewarm Christianity where when you people are so ignorant of Scripture that when you begin to talk about holiness, they think you're talking about something that's different than grace. And I want to say, no, no, no. What we're looking at here is what grace produces. What we're looking at, the fruit of the Spirit, is shows us and confirms us that we are followers of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, 14 through 20 the instruction is given, pursue peace with all people. And what else do we pursue? Now, if you just stop there, uh, as I was listening to World News podcast this week, the question was asked, I can't remember the context, but the guy was saying, if you could ask people what they would desire, if you could see any superpower achieve it. One of the guy answered, he said this, peace. I would love to be able to grant peace to family relationships, peace to world rulers, peace. If we stop there, that's, that many people would agree. They would say, yeah, peace. That's what, I, that's what I want as well. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it diligently with tears. We see this instruction to pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Be ye holy, as I am holy. This is a command. This is an instruction. This is a call to the believer who walks in the ways of Christ, who is led of the Spirit of God. And as we'll see at the very end next week, this whole psalm is describing the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only been but one man who has fulfilled Psalm 15. So do not hear me tonight and hear me say this. We are to be the perfect embodiment of Psalm 15, to have favor with God. Or to appease God. I'm not saying that. But what we see in Psalm 15 is the description of what God has done in the life of the believer. And you know what it does? As we walk through this answer, this detailed six couplets, 12 characteristics, what we're going to feel and what we're going to experience, at least your pastor has, is being absolutely crushed. Because here's what we hear. We think, who can attain to such a standard? Who has fulfilled such an expectation? Who can live out such a reality? And friends, if the answer that we come to is, is, oh, it's easy. This, yeah, no problem. Then we may be missing the gospel. We may be missing the reality, as we saw last week in Psalm 14, that none do good. None are righteous. We must first be crushed before we can be raised up with the hope of the gospel. We must come before the law and be silenced and absolutely devastated before we can receive the good news of what Christ has done for us. So we're going to see that Jesus is the perfect man. And so run to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Rest in Jesus as your hope for salvation. And as you follow Jesus in the truth, 
The truth will sanctify you. Christ through his word and the gift of the Holy Spirit will begin to birth and work these realities in and through you. It's what we call sanctification. Growing in holiness. Growing in righteousness. Again, before we maybe give one more distinction. We do these things because of what Christ has done in us. Not in order to. The distinction we make here as you kind of walk through some of these Old Testament passages is not in order to, slash, but because of. What we see here in Psalm 15 is, is do not hear this message or these two messages and say, okay, this is what I've got to do to earn favor with God. No, no, no. It's because of what Christ has done. As we live faithfully to the truth, we'll see, as we examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith, we'll see the Holy Spirit and the truth of God birthing these realities. We'll look into the mirror of God's Word and see where we, we've not arrived, but we're growing. And, we're, and He's working in us. He's sanctifying us. And, and He is, Philippians 1 verse 6, He will see it to its completed end. Here, first of all, in this answer, David points us to the godly man's character. Notice what he says in verse 2. He who walks uprightly. Now in the wisdom languages, in the Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, the word walk is a key word. He who walks uprightly. Walk describes a whole of life. Walk describes the daily pattern of a person's life or the direction of a, a person's lifestyle. Walk is connected to feet. So regularly we see verses like this. Ponder the path of your feet. Walk, path, feet are, are verses and commands that are regularly given to us to, to cause for self-examination. Your walk describes your whole of life. The believer's walk. Paul gives detailed description in Ephesians chapter 3 and 4 and 5. So here David points to the godly man's character, he who walks uprightly. His ways are marked as upright. This word upright means whole or sound. And so he is, he is the opposite of, of, of someone to be blamed for iniquity. This man is a blameless person. The blameless person whose character is, we could say, understanding these words, well-rounded. Righteousness and character are beginning to be formed within him as he grows in grace and he grows in the truth and the fear of the Lord. And every part of his life comes together to form a complete, key words here, complete and balanced living. Complete and balanced godly living. His character described, first verse 2, is the man who walks uprightly. And then secondly, notice there, he walks uprightly and... He proactively, positively, he works righteousness. How do we do this? How does a believer work righteousness or how is righteousness manifested and expressed in his life? Well, to point to the gospel, it doesn't come apart from the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is imputed to our account, friends. And as we grow in sanctification, we begin to obey the Lord in all truths. Uh, John 17, verse 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says to the Father, Sanctify the disciples. Sanctify all that you will give to me. Sanctify them through your truth, Father, for your word is truth. 
This is another way of saying being obedient to God. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness is one who says, Yes, Lord, when exposed to the truth of Scripture. Does this sound familiar? We touched on this on Sunday. This word righteous describes a person whose life is controlled by the Word of God. Consistent conformity to truth. This is Psalm 1 language. Remember the Psalm 1 man, he hears the Word, he believes the Word in his heart, and then he does it. He practices it. He puts what he believes and what he hears to practice. James 1, do not be a a hearer of the Word and yet not a doer of the word. Just to review Sunday morning's opening question, the connections are too strong. The question we asked Sunday was this, is your doctrine of Jesus leading you to greater worship and obedience to Jesus? Is my understanding of Christ and of God doing anything in my life? Is it leading me to greater faith, greater obedience, and greater fruit? For many who claim Christ, their lives show no power, no change, no increase in love for Christ or the church, no greater passion or commitment to the gospel in seeing other people come to faith in Christ. And one point we made Sunday morning was this. Truth or revelation leads to worship. Worship leads to obedience. And that's what the righteous man here in Psalm 15 is describing. His character. How do we know he's godly? How do we know he's righteous? He responds with obedience to God's word. Friends, what about us here this evening? Let's let's move from this is the standard of Scripture. This is the authority of God's word. But what about me? What about you? Friends, what about our time as as we are exposed to the truth of Scripture? Can we just, can we recognize something here at Grace? It comes with a double-edged sword. As you think about our, our practiced rhythms we're blessed here in a, with a congregation who loves God's Word and regularly come, you're here tonight. You're, you're coming before the Word of God to be exposed to it, to sing it, to pray it, to hear it preached. But it comes with a double-edged sword because the more we're exposed to God's Word, the more we're, we are responsible to that truth we're exposed to. So think about the rhythms that we experience. We're starting up here on Sunday. We, we have small group Sunday school. We have Sunday morning worship. Not every Sunday evening, but most Sunday evenings we have Sunday evening worship in different passages. We're in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. We're in small group themed Bible studies, men's Bible studies, ladies' Bible studies, prayer meetings. The Word of God is central here at Grace, but it comes with a double-edged sword. If our hearts do not have a desire to obey what we hear, friends, we, we at worst are unbelievers, and at best we're, we're disobedient. And so that desire to have our ears tickled, to be around the things and truth of God makes us not different, much different than Judas who heard all of God's sermons at worst. And at best, best, people who are fully controlled uh, by the word of God and following the Lord Jesus Christ and loving loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, may the Lord strengthen us. May our exposure to the truth lead to greater righteousness that is evident to all. One that we don't have to espouse, one that we don't have to preach. Listen, many, Proverbs says, a man will proclaim his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find, one faithful to the truth of Scripture. Secondly, the second couplet that David gives here in this answer is his conversations. 
As we've often noted in this study through the journeying through the book of Psalms, the, the ungodly are noted by their usage of their words. The point is made this, both the righteous and the unrighteous, both the godly and the ungodly, are identified mainly by how they use their words. Because our words flow out of our heart. Notice the conversations that he has, verses 2 and 3. He speaks the truth in his heart. He does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. This second couplet focuses on the words, or maybe most specifically the tongue of the believer. As we talked about just a moment ago, how that character is revealed and displayed, when a godly man comes before exposure to truth, he doesn't just hear it, he applies it. And so he speaks truth in his heart. Notice positively, verse 2, positively, he speaks truth. Then negatively, he does not, verse 3, speak evil of his neighbor. So this second description is given in regards to his, his conversations, his usage of words. Firstly there, positively, he speaks the truth in his heart. Go with me now over to James 1 just for a moment. And I want us to talk about the, this importance of seeing this played out and making application to our own lives. Turn with me to the book of James. James, in James chapter 1, gives description of those who are true believers, but then also those who are self-deceived. Those who think one thing, but they're, they're self-deceived. They are so blind that they do not even see that they are not following through with what they say. They are what they believe. Notice, James begins in verse 13 by saying this. James 1 verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted that he is tempted by God. I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Jesus makes this clear. Matthew's gospel, he says, it comes from the heart of man, iniquities, adulteries of heart, and, and, and uh, it gives a detailed description there. Each one, verse 14, is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Listen, we, we could all point to swindlers and those who deceive and cheat people out of, of their homes or their mortgages or their bank accounts, people who deceive the thief who uses his words to slick talk into an elderly person's possessions and just giving one example is commonplace today and that person is cast to the street and they've been lied to and they signed over things they were deceived well that that is certainly a, a wicked form of deception but i'm going to submit that there's even a greater form and i'm going to give you a list of the different types of deceptions tonight but the the, the most evil type of deception is self Deception, Or maybe we can say it like this, the most tragic deception is self-deception. What is the language of your own heart? 
Whether you realize it or not, your heart is constantly having a conversation. Or your mind, your inner man is constantly having a conversation. Now, I'm not getting weird here. You understand this. We're not talking about self-help. We're not talking about uh, positive affirmations. I'm not talking about any of that. We're just talking about the soul, the life of the soul. Our consciences informed by truth in Scripture. Have you ever awoken in the middle of the night and your mind is clicking? You wake up uh, and all of a sudden, I mean, you just you're kind of awakened to the fact that your mind is is working. It's thinking. It's talking. It's moving. Some of your best ideas probably come in the middle of the night, so you want to go write it down. Just maybe a random example of how the inner man is constantly thinking and talking. But it's important what we hear, what that man is saying. What is he saying? Oftentimes in our life we get discouraged and cast down. We meditate on, on things that are not helpful, things that continue a state of despondency or discouragement. That's why the Psalms, we have not covered any just yet, but we will in our study of the Psalms where the psalmist says, soul. He speaks to himself. He speaks to his inner man. He says, why are you, modern vernacular, why are you depressed, soul? Now, we would say, we, as little kids, we had parents, maybe you had parents like I did, who would you walk into a room and they're, they're in the middle of a conversation talking to themselves. And you say, Mommy, what, what are you doing? And, you know, she's having this not really conversation, but now, like, I find myself doing that. And my kids, they're like, Dad, who are you talking to? And you're, you're, you know, you're just thinking. Your mind's working through and that type of thing. Whether you realize it or not, your inner man is having a constant conversation. The godly man, that's just a categorical section. Now we come to the point here. The godly man is constantly speaking truth to his heart. The godly man understands who he is, understands who God is, and what Christ has done for him. The godly man understands that his worship begins in the inner man, not the outer man. The godly man uses his words, speaks truth, and before he can speak words to others, that truth must control, Colossians 3.16 language, the word of God dwelling in him richly. Now Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 through 35, exposes the Pharisees when he says this, You brood of vipers, how can you being evil... Speak good things. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. James, in James chapter 2 language, describes how can from one body of water can sweet water come and bitter water. So friends, here's the point. The godly man's heart is anchored in the truth of God. And that truth of God, when he begins to see himself becoming hypocritical, when he begins to see himself, the reality of his inner man, as diaspora or different or um, separated from, disjointed from his outer man, he begins to speak truth to his heart, understanding that God despises hypocritical worship. Described, for example, in Isaiah 29, 13. Therefore, the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people, speaking of Israel, inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths, and they honor me with their lips, but they have removed, notice here, their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the commandment of men. Jesus echoes this again, Matthew 8, 15, verse 8. These people, which we'll see Sunday, making the connection here, right? Matthew 15, 8. These people draw near to me with their mouth, 
and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In this second couplet, we see this description that the godly man positively speaks truth, and that speaking truth doesn't begin here, it begins here, in the area and in the realm that only God can see. And so as we close tonight, I want you to go back to Psalm chapter 1 with me. Go back to Psalm 1 and notice how do we, a practical takeaway. What is the practical takeaway as we think, as we're reflecting on this portrait of godly men and women, the children of God? What, what is something practical, that an action item that we can take this evening as we're convicted, as we're reminded, as we're shown this portrait of the, the godly, those who are in Christ, well, Psalm 1 takes us back to the basics. As you're turning there, I want to conclude one thought here in my notes. This godly man here in Psalm 15, the truth of God stirs his inner being and leads to genuine worship. And whatever he is, what he is is this, he's authentic. Now, I'm not trying to praise, we live in a realm that elevates and exalts authenticity to a weird degree. Just be authentic, you just be you. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about in the way our culture talks about it. I'm talking about real. There's not a version of you here and there's not a version of you there. Scripture gives language like this, you're, you're not double-minded, you're not double-tongued, you're not double-souled. James language, double-faced, double soul. Elijah asked the people of God, 1 Kings 18.21, How long will you halt, falter between two opinions? Well, how do we do that? How do we be the real deal? How do we allow the truth of what we're hearing in the congregation publicly proclaimed? And how does it have practical application to the pouring cereal for the kids in the morning? And saying goodbye to our spouse and going to sit in the cubicle and going to the store with a friend and the everyday rhythms of life. What well, begins, go back to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But, verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, Scripture, and in his law he meditates day and night. And because of that discipline, notice there the word meditation, he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Friends, get into the truth of the word of God and meditate. Come before the mirror. Again, a lot of James parallels. James language says, come before the mirror of God's word and I would encourage you, this is not a, a commandment. This is not a you shall. I'm not trying to give you bird, lay you down with burdens, but I'm trying to practically unpack Psalm 1 and simply just say this. Whatever it takes for you to meditate on Scripture, you do that. Take a blank piece of paper, read the Word of God, take the notes from tonight, and get alone with the Lord, even if it's tomorrow at some point, at, off, off of tonight's sermon, and just say, Father, would you lead me by your Spirit to spend time meditating on the truth and making practical application to my, not just my life, but my inner man, the man that only you see, the man that only you know. When people see us, they're, they're seeing a multifaceted triune being that is made in the image of God. There, there's the person that we want to be. There's the persons that others know us to be. 
And then there's the person that God knows we really are. We have a projected image. It's just a part of being a creature. It's a part of being frail. It's a part of constantly aspiring. There's a person we want to be, and there's the person others know us to be. They see our blind spots. They see our frailties. They see, ask your children, ask your spouse. That's the, that's the person. But then there's a person that only God sees, and that's who you really are. And so as we come before the truth and we make this application, Lord, help us to meditate upon the gospel. Remind myself every single day that the gospel is an item of first importance. The truth of scripture as it sanctifies me and grows me in the things of God. Lord, help me to be authentic, faithful, and true. To be following the Lord Jesus Christ that this reality is born and evidenced in my life. Why? Not because you're earning or trying to get favor with God, but because you love God. You worship Him. You want to draw near to Him. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel in that you have given us clean hands and a pure heart. And it's because of the work of Christ. Paul says in the book of Colossians, you have qualified us. Who's, who's allowed to go and knock on the door of of the home of God and say and dwell and abide there. Listen, Christ has qualified us as children, adopted children. We can come into your presence. We can come boldly before you and worship you and fellowship with you. There's reverence. There's awe. There's intimacy. There's fellowship. But Lord, we remind ourselves that you are a holy God. And reminding ourselves of who you are reminds us of the grace of God in Christ, what you've done for us. Father, life's too short to be fake. Life's too short to not allow the power of the gospel to take root in every aspect of our life. And so, Lord, as we close tonight, we, we repent. We want to come bowing in the posture of our hearts before your throne and just say, Lord, by your spirit, would you show us where we are inconsistent, where our life is not matching up with the reality of what you know us to be inside. Father, the greatest thing that, that we could be would be to be a hypocrite. And we don't want to be a hypocrite. And by your grace, you regularly show us as we come before your word where we've been blind to hypocrisy, we, but we are a hypocrite. Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, shine the flashlight of God's word on these areas that, as it may apply this evening. And Father, that we would repent and run to Christ and rest in your finished and atoning work for us. And, Father, that we would be led of your spirit into the truth, that you would lead us into all truth, and that you'd give us freedom that can only come from the truth that sets us free. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Father, I pray now for your people. I pray that you would protect us as we leave this place. We look forward to the rest of the week, the opportunities for the gospel and what you've ordained for us tomorrow and Friday and Saturday. Lord, we pray that you would bring us back uh, here on the Lord's Day, that we would worship you with your people. What a, that would be a glorious day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.